Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Emily Palmer is an investigative reporter whose work has taken her from a jail cell at Rikers Island to small mountain pueblos in Durango, Mexico. She has traveled across the country inspecting child welfare laws, uncovered environmental damage in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and embedded with the Sinaloa cartel to tell the story of the drug war from across the border. From New York, Emily has daily covered the highest profile trials of drug kingpin El Chapo, con artist Anna Delvey, aka Anna Sorokin, and R&B singer R. Kelly. Her work was recently highlighted on ABC's 2020 and Nightline. And of course, you can see her crime documentaries on HBO Max and Hulu. Emily, thank you for coming on the show. I cannot wait to dive into your story. Give us first and foremost, just a little background on you, where you're from. Did you always think you were going to be an investigative reporter? Well, thank you so much for the introduction. That was really quite kind. I'm from Durham, North Carolina, and I moved to New York uh, for school and had no plans really of staying and then sort of just couldn't really leave the city. I fell completely in love. I did not originally plan to be an investigative reporter. I actually kind of fell into journalism. I loved writing. I loved storytelling. I loved talking to people. It seemed like a natural fit. So starting in high school, I was like, ah, maybe journalism. And it was my final year in college at the University of Carolina Chapel Hill, where I did an internship with a local news outlet as an investigative researcher. I wasn't finding the stories. Once the stories were kind of already taking shape, I did a lot of the research component to sort of flesh that out. And I realized I absolutely loved it. And also that I really wanted to learn how to find the stories. And so I took another uh, program where I learned more investigative skills. And then I just set out from there. What are some key investigative skills? Like what's the secret recipe to being good at this? The funny thing about investigative reporting is a lot of it is just being a really diligent, approachable human. There is very much a fact-finding you know, mission and you need documents and you need evidence. But a lot of that comes from people sharing their stories and getting people to open up and to explain things and to trust you. 
And after they trust you, to get them to tell their story in a detailed and compelling enough way that other people will care. That can be really challenging. Sometimes you're dealing with people who are going through a lot of trauma and they have a hard time talking about the things that have happened to them. So sometimes it's just finding a way to get the person you know, comfortable to talk and to share their story in their own words, but maybe a little bit more you know, detailed and image-driven than what they would normally share. You've covered very high-profile cases. El Chapo, for example, what are the challenges of working on those high-profile cases and how much do they take you away from your personal life? <laughs> what personal life? <laughs> I mean, journalism is a hard job to have a personal life in. The number of like dates where I've gotten a call from an inmate and I was like, I'm sorry, I have to take this more than once. Um, high profile cases are particularly challenging because they are all consuming. In the case of El Chapo, we were publishing a story a day or more. And, you know, it's breaking news and you're in there with a lot of other outlets and we're all listening to the same testimony and seeing the same evidence. So it can be very draining trying to like come up with stories. And also just that there's so many eyes on these stories so quickly. There's always the concern about, you know, making an error, but it's just going to be glaringly obvious when there's so many other outlets there as well. In the case of El Chapo, we were literally camping outside of the courthouse. So I would start camping outside the courthouse at like midnight, 1, 2 a.m., literally sleeping on the sidewalk when I could, and then going in in the early morning hours, only being allowed into court 9, 9.30. Then there's a whole court day. I think it went till 4, 4.30. And then you're writing on top of that afterwards. The camping out part, is that because there's a risk of not getting into the courtroom? Right, right. No, I was not camping out for kicks and giggles. Uh, yeah, so they only allowed a certain number of people in the courtroom. Got it. And they did have an overflow room. So after the first few days of trial, you could pretty much be guaranteed a spot to hear, but you would be watching on a tiny screen. It was essentially one courtroom over, but virtual. And it was really hard to hear. Everything was being translated. So there were just so many chances for things to go wrong where you, you missed something important that it was really important to be in the courtroom. And there were so many outlets. I mean, the entire world was interested in that story, right? Like there were so many outlets there, lots of American media, lots of Latin American media, but outlets all over who were, you know, covering this and, and trying to tell stories and being in the courtroom just gave you the level of detail that you couldn't otherwise have. You know, one other aspect to that story was that El Chapo's wife was coming into the main courtroom. And so they would have interactions and you would want to see sort of how they were interacting with one another and the cameras that they had for this virtual setup, you couldn't see that. So there was a lot of color that you could kind of add to the piece if you were, you know, in there observing in real time. For everyone listening, I mean, Emily has won many awards, one of which was the Spotlight Fellow in 2017, which was issued by the Boston Globe and Participant Media, where you and Jessica Huseman were awarded $100,000 to pursue a four-year child welfare investigation that led to the creation of two national databases. You go deep, girl. You go super deep. How do you choose what you go after? Child welfare, it never really felt like a choice. It felt sort of like an obligation. 
I had done a different piece on Mississippi foster care while I was a student at Columbia. And while I was there working on that project, there were so many people who said, you know, we really think you should pursue something else that people are going to care more about. Like this is kids in Mississippi. We don't really expect much of Mississippi. Obviously their system is really bad. And I'm like, well, like, what about kids who are dying in the system? Like, is that bad enough that we can care about Mississippi? And ultimately, my editors at the Times agreed that that was bad enough and that we should care about Mississippi. But there was, you know, a year of reporting where people were telling me I really was kind of wasting my time. And it was a harder system to sort of immerse myself in. Um, You know, as an investigative reporter, I sort of think of touching down into new worlds, right? Almost like planetary systems, rediscovering everything, removing my own assumptions about what this world entails. And the child welfare system is a particularly important system to sort of do that with. You know, the child welfare system is in the shotgun seat to all of our country's worst problems, high rates of poverty, high rates of incarceration, the obvious, you know, child abuse and often broader domestic violence that's associated with this. I mean, it's a touchstone to a million different stories. And so when you're touching into that world, you're really touching into all these other ones as well. So, you know, I was really interested in learning more about that system. Another family member had sort of told me about a pending lawsuit against Mississippi's system. It was headed to be the first state in the country to lose control of its own system because it was doing so badly. Um, And so I was like, I think it's really important. We need to talk about it. And I spent a year and a half reporting out that first story. And then the piece that I did from the Globe came from that. I had actually met children who were currently in foster care when I started reporting. These were teenagers who were about 18 years old, and they were coming to me with these horrendous stories of what had happened to them in foster care. Uh, And it's very rare to actually get to talk to people in foster care when they're in foster care. And so my first story was sort of based on that. And then I knew so much about the world. I talked to so many people trying to prove to people that it was a worthy story of telling. I had like over 70 hours of recorded tape before I even went to an editor at the Times um, and said, I want to do this story. And by the time I went to an editor, he said, I think you should write a book. I had that much just sort of to kind of prove that it was a worthy story to tell. And what that meant was, was that a few years later, I was still reporting out stories that I had started sort of seeing years before. And my friend and colleague, Jessica Huseman, we had met at Columbia. She had done a story on homeschooling. She had seen that world touches very heavily within the child welfare system. She had started to see some other similar issues that we were both sort of seeing and talking about. You know, the sad thing is we would go to brunch and talk about child welfare, right? Like, and we were like, maybe there's another story we could tell this bigger, you know, systemic story that goes beyond just foster care, which is only a small part of child welfare, but like, anybody who's even touching the system and how does it look not just in Mississippi, but everywhere else. And is Mississippi the worst? And it turns out that even though there was a lot of attention on Mississippi because of a lawsuit, their system was actually kind of middle ground. There were so many states that were doing so much worse to protect their children and the people who were sort of more largely involved in the system. And the story we ended up focusing on, I think, went to some of these larger issues. So when you're embarking on going down this rabbit hole, if you will, do you ever come across where you hit on people 
who really don't want you to tell this story and where you start to get your spidey sense of like, this could actually be dangerous to tell this story? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, I've gotten death threats. I mean, there are definitely stories that I've told and wanted to tell that my grandmother and parents felt a little differently about. <laughs> so when you think about because you are someone that inspires so many young journalists who want to follow in your footsteps, what do you hope they learn from your career path? Hmm. You know, I think one thing is that relationships with your editors are sacred. Yes, like they can help you get jobs. Yes, they can, you know, put you up for great opportunities. Um, it was only through great relationships with editors that I've gotten the opportunities that I've gotten. But more than that, you know, you work with good editors, you work with not so good editors. And the good editors make you feel completely supported and grounded so that when you are working on stories where you're receiving death threats or you have somebody sort of stalking you, you can go to your editor and tell them and they're telling you you know, what to do and they are putting protections in place to make you feel more comfortable and to make sure that you are safe. So I think that that's really important, especially when you're working on tough and like sad stories. Um, child welfare would be an example for me. That really takes a huge toll on your mental health. And so, and so you need to have somebody that is sort of in the trenches with you and understands what you're going through. And obviously like friends and family can be a huge support to that. And you need somebody outside of the story too, who can kind of be saying things of support and making sure that you're okay. But you also need somebody who believes in the story as much as you do. And that often comes from an editor or doesn't. And that can be a real, a real problem. You know, the other is that your relationships with your sources are sacred. The relationship that you have with the source, you know, your editor doesn't necessarily have that same relationship with that source. So, you know, there are definitely times where you feel that you're sort of protecting that source when you're going to your editor and you're fighting over how to word a certain thing or, you know, how to handle a particular nuanced piece to the story. You know, sometimes you know that you know there might be one thing that makes it a little bit more clickbaity but ultimately you're telling the story of somebody's life and especially when i was talking with kids in foster care okay this kid has said that he's willing to have this on the record i don't really want that to follow him so i'm just i'm not going to put it in and so there is sort of a feeling of sort of protecting your story and i think too you just have to really believe in the stories that you work on if you don't believe in it and you're willing to kind of drop the story then you probably should drop the story one thing that comes to mind when I'm hearing, you know, you share your story is this incredible stamina. And I wonder, is that also connected to like the fact that you run marathons? Like you obviously have stamina. <laughs> you know, running marathons, I've run four this year. I ran Berlin and New York. For me, it's a huge stress relief. My favorite runs are my long runs. I feel like it takes about 19 miles before I'm like, oh, I'm like de-stressed. So, <laughs> yeah, I just want to say for the record, we are not the same. I can't think of anything I'd rather do less than run a marathon, but you know, you do you. All right, switching gears, <laughs> you have clearly earned the trust of some of your subjects and very famously have become Anna Sorokin's favorite reporter, aka Anna Delvey. How did that relationship begin? So I had just finished covering El Chapo's trial and a month later, her trial sprang up in Manhattan criminal court. And 
my editor asked if I was interested in covering it. And I said, did anybody die? And he said, no. And I said, I am in. I was so excited. Oh my um, God, that's so funny. <laughs> I mean, mo- most of the crimes that I cover are murder and like heavy drugs. So if nobody is dead or, you know, completely wasted, it's like a good day in the crime world. So it felt like the perfect mental break post-Chapo. So I said yes. And it was about three weeks in court. And my editor said, you know, I'd really like to have you go to Rikers where Anna then was and talk with her. He's like, she'll probably say no. Like, why would she ever talk, you know, before the trial's over? But we never know. Like, just go and see what you can do. And I'd been going to Rikers for years because the Carlos Vega story, everybody else. So I went and it was like the most seamless experience of Rikers I'd ever had. Like the treatment that I got visiting her was just so different than when I went to visit somebody accused of murder. You know, down to the fact that like as a reporter going in, unless you, you know, book a special visitation, you go in with no notebook, you know, no pen, nothing. And they never let you have anything. And Anna just like raised her hand and asked if I could have something to write, <laughs> to write Wait, with. And they gave it to me. Can you take a recorder or anything? Any device? No. You just have to memorize. You have to memorize. Yeah. Oh um, so and- depending on your length of time, like when I was talking with Carlos for two years, right? Uh, we would talk and then we would write letters and he would confirm all the facts to make sure that I had everything right. What's the purpose of them saying you can't have a notebook? I think the argument is if you have a pencil or a pen, it could be used as a weapon. But I think mostly what I have found with these rules is it's like whatever we can do to make you and the inmate feel as low and inhuman as possible, we will do. Um, so, <laughs> Got it. And when you're visiting someone, most of the people who are visiting are you know family members. So you're sort of criminalized by association. The first time I met with Carlos Vega, a guard said, I don't know why you're meeting with him. He's an animal. So that's the sort of mindset that people tend to have. And then wait, sorry, when he said that where you were like, wait, why am I meeting with him? <laughs> um, I remember being kind of grossed out that he had just like said that to me and that he had used that word. I just found to be like really derogatory, but it did like put me on guard as a woman. And then that day at the time he was not at Rutgers, he was at a different jail facility, but we had a separate room because he was not gen pop and he was like too dangerous to be with the other people, quote unquote. And they locked me in a room with him and then they lost the key. Wait, time out. <laughs> Obviously I'm like thinking back to like every movie I've ever seen. You're not just like sitting with like glass between you. You're sitting in a room together. Yeah. So, I mean, it depends on the inmate. With Anna, we were seated like at a bench and all the female inmates were on one side and the visitors were on the other. And then guys in Gen Pop, you're like all in a room, all the families together. And a lot of people have families with like small kids. So you're like screaming at one another so you can be heard. And then with Carlos, he wasn't Gen Pop because he got into a lot of trouble. And so they said he was too dangerous to be with the other inmates. So they locked us in a room together, which was fine once I got to know him. But the first time they like literally lost the key and they had just said, oh, he's an animal. And so my first experience was like, what has happened? And he was like, totally fine. And he looked at me and he laughed and we got extra time because they couldn't find the key. And oh, so my all- oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. I'm dying. Yeah. All right. Taking it back to Anna for a second. I'm just curious, your initial meeting with her, because here's my view. My view is she is a master at personal branding. 
master marketer. And I know this sounds wrong, but I kind of like her. And I feel like a lot of people do also. So I'm just curious, when you first met her, did you have like a connection to her? I mean, to be honest, I found her trial to be really boring. Um, (laughs) It was right after El Chapo and everything had been like so glitz and glam with him. And then it's like how to be like a fraudster, how to, you know, fake bank records. Like it's Photoshop, you know, like it's not that interesting. And I only became interested in her trial at the very end of it when I met her. And then I was like, oh, I get it. There was something about her that intrigued me and I think intrigued millions of people. Clearly. There's a Netflix show. And part of it was sort of this persona and this aura of not really caring what other people think. And I think that that makes people kind of care what she thinks about them, right? And I think that's how she did everything she did, you know, before she ended up in jail was that people just sort of wanted to help her. And I found that sort of attribute really, really interesting. I also was interested in that, like, by that point, I had spoken to a lot of people who, you know, were accused of murder and even, you know, mothers who killed their own children. No one had ever said that they weren't a good person to me. You know, everybody would have claimed they were good people. I think we had this like innateness within ourselves where no matter what we do, we want to be seen as a good person, even if we quote unquote aren't. Um, I don't really believe in good and bad labels. Like I think we do good things, we do bad things. Some of us do more of one than the other. But like the only person I ever interviewed who said they weren't a good person to me was Anna. And I thought that that was really interesting, right? She had not killed anyone. She had done far, far less. And she had like an interesting way of looking back at what she had done and not apologizing for it famously, but certainly sort of recognizing why certain people felt the way they did about her. She's joked that she's sort of like an international pariah. And she says that with, you know, a little bit of pride, I think. She's sort of able to cut off some of the emotion that we have that can kind of cloud and blind ourselves to ourselves. But like, is she an international pariah? Like, I almost don't, I don't know, maybe this can be my judgment clouded between the Netflix show, her Instagram posts, you know, how she walks out of her apartment now in like, look number 10 from Gucci, uh, you know, obviously not, but like, it's all packaged so Mm -hmm. incredibly well. I mean, I just don't think she's a pariah. Am I crazy? (laughs) I think everybody loves Anna. They either love to love her or they love to hate her. Uh, But everybody feels really passionately about her. And I think she is really good at marketing herself. And I think she understands that like, It doesn't really matter if people love her or hate her as long as they feel really strongly about her. And she's okay with that. Uh, And that's why she's had so much success, I think, both on the screen and in the years since. So fascinating. So I feel like you're her go-to. Like anytime she wants to say something, it's like, let me just call Emily and like see what happens. I mean, you're there. You're like her ride or die reporter. So in your opinion, Emily... What do you think is going to happen next? And do you think, I mean, I know people ask this question all the time, like, does crime pay? Oh, crime absolutely pays. It pays me, right? Like, if a crime's not committed, 
I don't have a story to write. And it has certainly served her well. And she's been able to do a lot with it. There are certainly many, many people who uh, go through the jail system who do not have the same experience Anna sure. has had. And I think she hit a sweet spot in that people could enjoy enjoying her crime because she didn't really hurt anyone permanently. No one was killed. No one, you know, became addicted to drugs, right? Like the pain was impermanent and it was financial and it was almost solely against people who had plenty of money and who were protected even from the get-go. Um, a lot of people point to the friend Rachel, who's in the Netflix series and say, okay, but what about her? She came from a very wealthy family. Her boyfriend helped support her while she was going through everything. And Amex ultimately forgave the entire charge. Uh, so, you know, in the end, she temporarily lost $62,000. She got it back. She was supported in between and she made far more later off of book and HBO deals. So when you actually have your victims who are also suddenly actually like making money off the crime, it becomes sort of easier for people to say, oh, this is just sort of really interesting. Look at these different characters. Look what happens. It starts to feel more like a story than something that actually like happened to people. And it did. It happened to people. It would have been a bad experience, but like it was not the type of crime that you can't kind of look at from a different perspective than most. So she's still on house arrest, right? Yes. And this is all like, if she went back to Germany, would she be free? Yeah. That's the crazy thing is she actually was incarcerated for an additional 18 months because she hated Europe that much. I mean, that's wild. Yeah. It's pretty wild. You know, now she's on house arrest, but she cannot leave her apartment. So, you know, Anna says, well, people have to come to me. So anytime like I'm working on a project, I have to either call her or literally go to her apartment. So I'm seeing her later today, actually. Oh, tell her I say hi. Tell her I'm a fan. I was talking to my sister yesterday and I told her that we were having this podcast and she was like, she's like, Anna's terrible. I'm like, no, she's not. What? Banks got hurt? Like what? She's really good style. No, I mean, like, this is, you know, fashion perspective right here. So interesting. So interesting. So you think she's going to ever, like, make ADF? I feel like she's going to. (laughs) The thing about Anna is she's interested in a million things at once. And those first conversations I had with her at Rikers, where she did ultimately sit down and talk with me, much to my surprise, not once, but twice, she was avid that ADF was going to be a thing the Anna Delvey Foundation. But in the years since, especially when we started talking more and more during her time in immigration detention, she was like, so many other things have happened to me. I'm so much more interested in all these other things. So could I see something being called the Anna Delvey Foundation? Without a doubt. Will it be the social club in Manhattan? I don't think so. But like people would join. That's what's so funny. <laughs> people would absolutely join. It would that be like the new true. zero bond. It would be the new <laughs> zero bond. I mean, that's literally what it'd be. Okay. What is the number one assumption people make when they hear that you're an investigative reporter or they hear someone is an investigative reporter? <laughs> when I meet somebody new, they're like, oh, this conversation is off the record immediately like it's like like a meeting like a person at a bar you know or like a friend (laughs) of a friend and I'm like I'm not going to report about you tomorrow in the newspaper Um, most likely you're not saying anything that interesting but also like I'm not investigating you you know like you know it's an interesting age that we live in now where, where there's so much distrust of the media 
particular outlets and also just journalists, you know, generally. And, you know, everybody has their own take on it and thinks that you definitely want to know their thoughts on everything you've ever written about. I did a piece on gun trafficking and you can imagine how nobody had any thoughts about that. Right, uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, it's certainly a job. Um, it's not like, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm an accountant. Oh, okay. I don't really have any questions. You know, it's like, oh, an investigative journalist. Like, what are you working on? And like, what can you tell me ahead of time? And like, yeah, you know, what, what is this person really like? And like, you know, every guy I've ever met has asked for Anna's number. I've given no one her number. Uh, you know, so just things like that. Are you guys like friends now where you just like text just like normal stuff? I mean, I'm very avid about like keeping lines because I do still, you know, write stories about her. So we do text often. Anna has described our relationship as a close, 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 close source reporter relationship. And I, I like that. I think that that sets well. Certainly I talked to her a lot and we have more of a rapport than I have with some other sources. You know, we've talked sometimes daily for years. Why do you think part of her sentence was that she can't be on social media? <laughs> you know, they did not, they, as in like the court system, the, the immigration system did not want to let her out. I think that she had, you know, a lot of privilege within the system and that it was her choice to be there. She had Netflix level resources and people willing to represent her without pay. And a lot of people can't say that, you know, when you're in immigration detention, unlike a regular jail, you do not have the right to an attorney. So if you have a lawyer, you're paying for them and free services that are supposedly available to immigrants. And I'm not saying that they aren't available, but they are very hard to come by. And I was even like making calls on behalf of other inmates and like, which wow. is just getting voice message machines, you know? So there were a lot of things that were easier for Anna. But there were other things that were challenges because she was so well-known. You know, I think a lot of regular people really like Anna. Uh, she had upset a lot of very rich people who, you know, have connections. And she did very much feel that sometimes she was sort of targeted in how she was treated within the immigration system while recognizing the privilege that she also had. They were sort of simultaneous and parallel to each other. And so I think that they didn't want to let her out of jail but ultimately, they really didn't have enough to like really keep her there. It was very evident that they could keep her on house arrest with an ankle monitor. And like she wasn't really a threat to society as long as, you know, they had certain measurements in place. But, you know, I think they wanted to still sort of punish her. Right. And she's has a million followers on Instagram and she became famous while behind bars. And, you know, bureaucrats don't really like that. So, yeah. <laughs> so they, they could let her out on house arrest with an ankle monitor, but they were going to take away Instagram. Well, perfect segue. Let's switch over to Twitter. Journalists Playground. How are you feeling about Twitter these days? Hmm. You know, I love Twitter. I don't want to say loved past tense. I want to say I, I do love it. I don't tweet as much as I used to. Um, I tweet a lot when I'm covering a trial because I think there's good and bad things about Twitter. And one of the things that I love about Twitter is it can get information out really fast, really important details. If there's a high profile trial that people are really interested in, before I write the story, I want to write up some things that people want to know, right? To sort of give the sense that they're there too. You know, the reason that reporters can go into courtrooms is because it's open to the public. And I think Twitter makes that more accessible. 
So I, I love it for that. Right now I'm working on several investigative pieces. I like can't share anything until I can share everything. And so there's just not really been much of a point to it for me. And of course, there's all the vitriol that Twitter's also known for. So I tend to almost stay off it completely if I'm not on it for work. How do you choose your next story? Do they come to you or you seek them out? The projects that I'm currently working on, I actually have a piece out of Mexico through my embed with the Sinaloa cartel. And so that's something that kind of just continued out of the El Chapo trial. I have another piece. I'm not quite done with Anna yet. (laughs) And then... You'll um, never be done with Anna. That's my bet. That's my bet. And then I have another project actually that is totally new, but came to me several steps removed actually from another criminal that I'd reported on. And someone in that world reached out to me and said, I think there's this other story you might be interested in. So source networks kind (laughs) of coming back. Is there anything next on your bucket list that you can share? Something that you'd love to do? Mm. Put it out and manifest it in the universe? (laughs) So this past year, uh, I made a deal with myself. So I'm a freelancer, so I'm able to pick my projects. There's a lot of not so great things about being a freelancer. That is one of the best things is you do get to pick your projects. And this past year, I decided I would only do a project if I either thought that it was important or it gave me joy. And I was really kind of burned out from some of these other projects. So most of the stories I did this year just gave me joy. Really enjoyed the Anna stuff that I did this year. I had a lot of fun with that. And most of the other stories were just sort of fun pieces as well. And I think I finally hit my max where I'm I'm ready to delve into something that goes more towards the, like, I think it really matters for like the state of humanity. Not that, you know, it necessarily changes anything, but sort of digging deep again. I think I've healed enough that I can do that again. <laughs> oh my God. Amazing. Last question. How do you ultimately want to leave your mark? What's Emily Palmer's headline? Mm-hmm. I've written stories that I think did push toward change and things kind of eventually became maybe a little bit better. But I've never done a story that just had really profound impact. And I think one of the more meaningful things for me would be, you know, something that I think would affect for the better the lives of young people, whether that's children in foster care or I've been thinking about like starting like a creative writing program and like a juvenile detention center, uh, something like that. I think, you know, whether it's like through education and helping kids find their own voices or putting those voices on a platform where more people can hear them and think about sort of the systemic change that needs to be made within those programs. I think that would be the most meaningful thing I could, I could do in my career. That sounds incredible. Well, Emily, it was a joy to have you on Leave Your Mark. Thank you for making the time during your crazy busy schedule. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you today. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Aliza Licht XO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Aliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. 
If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalick.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.